I must say I appreciate Trey's optimism. He mentioned during the announcements um, that when you are done uh, filling out your cards, you can put them in the offering plate. Um, The offering plate comes after my sermon, and he said you could put them in the offering in a few moments. This is my last sermon for the year. I mean, and it's really cold. You don't want to go out there anyway, right? Just keep you through the next day. All right. My family and I decided this Advent that we wanted to try to slow down a little bit. We wanted to enjoy the season, be more intentional about the season. Um, We have tried to make sure that we do our Advent calendar each day. Uh, My son actually made his own, my five-year-old, and it's on the back of his door, and he marks the day off each day. Um, We also decided that, or I think I decided actually, my family, I just dragged them along with it, that part of that season would be watching Christmas shows and trying to do one each day if we could do it. It hasn't quite worked, but we have watched more than we normally do, and just take a Christmas show each night and try and watch it. And... There's one that we watched the other night that when the kids decided they were going to watch it, I kind of groaned inwardly because I remembered it and I didn't really want to watch it again. Um, It's been years. I mean, years. I don't think I've seen it since I was young, but I really had no desire to watch it. The Charlie Brown Christmas. Um, I was pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed that show. Um, Now, the first, like, five minutes, I thought I was going to fall asleep, and I was even doing the dishes. I thought I was going to fall asleep right in the sink. It was so dull. Uh, But as it got going, uh, number one, I was shocked at how many memorable quotes there are from that show. Like, I haven't seen it in, I would say, 25 years, maybe more, and yet there are all these things, especially Lucy, I mean, there are so many things Lucy says. I'm like, I can almost quote that as you're saying it, and I still haven't seen it. Maybe you remember some of this. Here's Lucy. You do think I'm beautiful, don't you, Charlie Brown? And then there's that pause. You didn't answer me right away. You had to think about it first, didn't you? If you really had thought I was beautiful, you would have spoken right up. I know when I've been insulted. I know when I've been insulted. You remember that line? Like many of us guys have been through that line. And then there's, there's Schroeder when he starts playing on the piano. This is the music I've selected for the Christmas play. And Lucy again. What kind of Christmas music is that? Beethoven Christian, Christmas music. What has Beethoven got to do with Christmas? Everyone talks about how great Beethoven was. Beethoven wasn't so great. Schroeder. What do you mean Beethoven wasn't so great? He never got his picture on bubblegum cards, did he? Have you ever seen his picture on a bubblegum card? Hmm? How can you say someone is great who's never had his picture on a bubblegum card? I would like some bubblegum cards for redemption. (laughs) And then there's this, and for those of you that maybe struggle a little bit with Christmas, Charlie Brown opens his mailbox, and he looks into it. Hello in there, rats. Nobody sent me a Christmas card today. I almost wish there weren't a a holiday season. I know nobody likes me. Why do we have to have a holiday season to emphasize it? (laughs) There's just so many sweet, uh, neat lines that go through this. I bring it up not to share those lines, 
But there's also, and the reason I was pleasantly surprised is there are two big themes that go through it. Number one is about the commercialization of Christmas. And just a couple of lines. Again, Lucy, look, Charlie, let's face it. We all know that Christmas is a big commercial racket. It's run by a big Eastern syndicate, you know. Here's Sally, Charlie Brown's little sister. She wants him to dictate a letter for him to Santa. Dear Santa Claus, how have you been? Did you have a nice summer? Charlie Brown looks at her. How is your wife? I have been extra good this year, so I have a long list of presents that I want. Please note the size and color of each item and send as many as possible. If it seems too complicated, make it easy on yourself. Just send money. How about tens and twenties? Charlie Brown, tens and twenties? Even my baby sister. Sally, all I want is what I, I have coming to me. All I want is my fair share. Then there's Lucy when Charlie Brown comes to pay her for psychiatric help because she's opened that little booth to help, him, to help people out. And she says, you got to pay first. And so he drops his nickel in the can. Boy, what a sound. Oh, how I love the sound of clinking money. That beautiful sound of cold, hard cash. Nickels, nickels, nickels. That beautiful sound of clinking nickels. This just goes through the whole show. All these references to money, to commercialization. Um, there's a number of them. And then there's this one. And I'll pull all this together. There's this theme of what is Christmas really about? Because you've got the one side of all of the money, the commercialization, and then you've got Charlie Brown over here. What's it really about? And uh, this is Charlie Brown talking to Linus. I think there must be something wrong with me, Linus. Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. I just don't understand Christmas, I guess. I like getting presents and sending Christmas cards and decorating trees and all that, but I'm still not happy. I always end up feeling depressed. And Linus responds, Charlie Brown, you're the only person I know who can take a wonderful season like Christmas and turn it into a problem. Maybe Lucy's right. Of all the Charlie Browns in the world, you're the Charlie Browniest. <laughs> and this line right here, is the question of the message this morning. Charlie Brown, I guess you were right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? What is Christmas all about? We have been going through the Gospel of Luke. It is a long first chapter. It has stories about Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and John the Baptist and Jesus. It kind of lays out this whole story. And what we tried to emphasize is that the entire Old Testament that we did for 16 weeks, it all led up to this. This moment, the culmination like all the promises to Abraham and especially to David, they were all coming true right now, right here. This was that moment. And when you come to the very end of that chapter, we get a prophetic word 
from Zechariah. We get the Holy Spirit telling us what Christmas is all about. And here's why I say Christmas. Because these are the last words that will be spoken before the birth of Christ in chapter 2. What we're about to read are the last things anybody says before the Savior comes. And they come as the capstone of everything leading up to that moment. And I'll tell you, chapter 1 is theologically dense. And there is so much Old Testament imagery going through it. And this is the capstone. What is Christmas all about? Go ahead and open your Bible to Luke chapter 1. There's all kinds of things that people would think of when they think of what is Christmas all about. And I'll start with our culture. Gifts, traditions, um, maybe family. There's all kinds of things like Christians. uh, Some are prone to say something like Jesus is the reason for the season. Which is clever, but I would argue it's still missing something. There is a focus that Zechariah is going to give us that I wonder how often it is an intentional, um, kind of all-out focus for what Christmas is really about. Verse 67. And this is, by the way, this is in reference to verse 66. Just back up to the question. What then will this child be? There's all these amazing things that happen. The mute man can speak again. They name him John, which is just, they should have named him John. You have nobody in your family named that. There's these amazing things going on. And the people are like, what kind of child is this going to be? Verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. And what he's about to say is divine revelation. It's more than a song. It's more than nice words. It's more than a man taking a bunch of Old Testament and stringing it together. This is the Holy Spirit filling Zechariah to speak. And it's the last thing we're going to hear before the birth of the Savior. What is Christmas all about? Verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Now, technically, this is verse 68a. It's the first half of the verse. B starts with four and is its own section. Everything from verse 68a all the way through verse 79 hinges on that first line right there. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And it says two things. Number one, it says something about him. He is blessed. He is praised. He is honored. He is generous. He is bountiful. All of those things are in in that word, blessed. He is those things. And he is those things, whether I believe it, whether you believe it, whether anybody believes it, he is those things. However, it's not just a statement of fact. It's also a call to do that. Bless the Lord God of Israel. And here is my argument. Christmas is all about 
blessing the Lord God of Israel before anything else. That when you come to the end of all of these accounts and all of these stories, right before the birth, and the Holy Spirit comes on Zechariah to say the final words we're going to hear, they are, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. That at the heart of Christmas is that we bless the Lord God of Israel. Before our presence, before our shopping, before our traditions, even before our family, before all of it, before the commercialization, before the shows that we've been watching through Advent. But at the heart of Christmas is the people of God blessing the Lord God of Israel. When Charlie Brown makes that statement, that question, and he says, what is Christmas all about? He gets an answer. And it's a moment in that, in that whole show that is different from the rest of it. He gets an answer from Linus. Everybody remember Linus? He carries his blanket around with him. I mean, through the whole show, all Lucy trying to, is trying to do is to drop that blanket. And one time she's like, what are you going to do when you grow up with that blanket? He says, I'll make it into a sports coat. I mean, no matter what, he's holding on to that blanket. Well, as he steps forward, this is what he says. Sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And then he takes center stage. Because they're doing a play. He takes center stage and everything goes on to him. Here's what he says. Lights, please. And a spotlight shines on him. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring unto you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. The angels make the announcement, but if they come to the end, the heavenly host show up and they say, Glory to God in the highest. Because that is the essential key to Christmas. Glory to God. That is why we celebrate. That's what we're doing on Christmas. At least what we're called to. To honor, to bless, to give glory to God before all other things. And then to let it all flow out of that. Now, what is the rest of the prophecy? Why? That's the rest of it. Why? Why should we bless the Lord God of Israel? Why would that be what it's all about? What's he done? What's it for? That's the rest of the chapter. Look with me, if you will. There's two things. Just two reasons why in this chapter, even though it's a lot of verses. Verse 68b starts the why. Why are we called to bless the Lord God? For he has visited and redeemed his people. He has come to their aid. 
This is the same language out of Exodus. Okay, we talked all about the Exodus when we were in the Old Testament. If you go to chapter 4, you will see this exact same language. He visited, he came to the aid, and he redeemed, which means to liberate. He freed them. And he raised up a horn of salvation. Think of a horn on an animal. It is the symbol of their power. It's what they fight with. And this language is used throughout the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, to describe power. Specifically, the Lord is the horn of salvation. So he has raised up a horn of salvation. Again, salvation is to rescue. In the house of his servant David, which we've talked all about, he came out of the house of David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, this is what he's been saying he would do. And this is not new. This is not shocking. This is not a surprise. This is the fulfillment that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. There's a reason that he did it. He came to our aid. He liberated us. He did that by raising up a horn of salvation, a powerful one who would rescue us from our enemies and from all those who hate us. And they have been in captivity since Babylon. Even when... They went back to the land. They were not their own. They still had some, a, a nation over them, ruling them. And so they were still, in their minds, in captivity. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, he's fulfilling his word. Yahweh said 2,000 years ago, Before this, he would bless the nations that those who loved Abraham, God would bless. And those who hated him, God would curse. He would work through Abraham. We talked all about that, like back in September. Then he said in David, there would be a man on the throne. They would rule that, that this promise, I would rescue you. There's all of these things. And he's saying, he's done it. He's fulfilled what he said he would do. Verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Here's the first reason that we are to bless the Lord God. He has come to our aid and liberated us and for a very specific purpose, that we might serve him. Now, think of all of the things that people do for you and the reasons why you might be grateful that they did it. I would bet none of them were to serve that person. That what you might think about is somebody loaned me money. Somebody gave me a job. Somebody did something nice for my family. But, but there's always something you're getting, right? Right? I mean, that's part of the reason that you write thank you cards to people, because you got something from them. When it comes all the way down through all of that, Zacharias says, here's the purpose, why we were redeemed, why he visited us, why he raised up this horn of salvation, that we might serve 
him. What a strange reward we might serve. Here's what the word means. Right? It is used, and this, this, now, this kind of parallel will help us. It's used in Acts chapter 7 to describe the Egyptian people serving the nation of Egypt. What does that mean? It means that the nation of Egypt is what they are dedicated to. It's what defines them. It's what they work for. It's how they see themselves. We are Egyptians. To serve is more than just, you know, like taking your platter and bringing it to somebody. And it's not just that. And it's not just doing things for God. It's bigger. It's about dedicating one's life to Yahweh. He did all those things for us that we could dedicate ourselves to him. And that we could do it, and hear this, without fear. They had a lot of things to fear because they were ruled by somebody else. There are things they could and could not do. They risked retribution if they were to serve Yahweh completely. He's saying, I'm removing that fear. And I'm allowing you to serve me in holiness and righteousness. Holiness is an attitude and a mindset of devoutness to Yahweh. It's how you think. Righteousness in this context is behavior. It's the corollary. That we can dedicate ourselves to God without fear and in our minds and in our actions. That's why he did it. Think of it. um, Many of you have wedding rings on. A wedding ring is both slavery and freedom. Right? Because you gave something up. You gave up your rights for anybody else so that you could dedicate yourself to one person. But in that dedication, you have the freedom to love that person without fear. You have the freedom to fully give yourself to that person. There is no competition. It is both slavery and freedom. I would argue it's the only true way of having freedom because you have to give something up. Here is Yahweh saying, I rescued you from that, that you might fully serve me, might fully be dedicated to me. I did not save you so that you could have a good life as you define it. I did not save you so that you could have the perfect spouse, the perfect job, the right amount of money. I didn't save you so you could have a church building. There's all these things that we kind of underlying, we think this is what it's about or this is what God's doing or what he should be doing. And I'm upset because this isn't happening or this isn't happening. He saved us for something bigger that we could serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness all the days of our lives. Now, let's go back to marriage for a minute. You give up things to get married, or at least you should. Because if you haven't given some things up, you need some marriage counseling. 
because you give up the right to make individual decisions about your life. You give up the right to just live your way. You've connected yourself to somebody else. However, in doing so, you get all the joys and privileges and strength and beauty and life and love of giving yourself fully to that person. Yahweh says, I came to rescue you. I came to make you so that you can serve me without fear in holiness and righteousness completely. Now, if we're being honest, some of you may feel like you are not truly free. I mean, just let's think about our lives for a minute. We've got all of our elected officials that we may or may not agree with. They have rule over our lives. We have bosses at work that, I mean, Trey? I mean, we've got people that just, terrible people, you know, that you're supposed to follow. We've got terrorism. We've got the way that our economy, I mean, we've got all kinds of things that we might say, I'm not truly free. God didn't really rescue me from all my enemies. There's all kinds of fear that I have. For sake of time, I'm not going to go into the passages, but I encourage you to go read Acts 4 through 6. And I'm going to quickly summarize. Because the first century Christians, they had all of those things. They had persecution. They had Rome still ruling. They had all these things that are very similar to us, only worse in most cases. And yet, when you go into Acts 4 through 6, you do not see people afraid. You see people who are saying, Yahweh is on the throne. Even though Caesar, even though Pontius Pilate, even though those guys are, Yahweh is on the throne. And if that is true, it doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. It doesn't matter all the other things that happen because my king, the one I'm dedicated to, that's the one that actually rules. And if I will give myself to him and trust him, I do not have to fear. I have to believe. Read them. Just go through those chapters. Um, there was a purpose for what he did. This past summer, we went to uh, South Dakota, and we went to Mount Rushmore. Raise your hand if you've been to Mount Rushmore. Hey, beautiful, beautiful. Um, amazing. I mean, shockingly amazing. If you've stood and looked at these statues... Statues, carvings, not statues. 60 feet tall, carved out of the side of the mountain. That is utterly impressive. Started in 1927. They had to quit in 1941 because they were going to do the busts too. They were going to go all the way down, but they ran out of finances to do it. But when you go there to see this, there are stairs all over the place. And as you follow the stairs, they take you to various places where you can get a good view of that. My three-year-old loves stairs. And he spent his time walking the stairs. And he would walk up the stairs to the platform where you can see and then turn back around and walk back down the stairs again. And he'd walk back up the stairs again and he'd go, oh, there's more stairs. And we're all waiting going, this is amazing. Go stairs. And he's going for the stairs again. 
And at one point, I told everybody else, go ahead, I'll, I'll stay with him. He takes off up these stairs, and I'm not kidding you, they don't actually lead to anyone, to anywhere. These are stairs, they're kind of like a little break area, but you can't actually see any of this. Trees surround it. It's just this little platform with some seats. Going, buddy, you're missing the point. We are here to see the grandeur of Mount Rushmore. This amazing feat. And all you care about are the stairs. We were saved for something bigger. We weren't saved to walk the stairs. There's all these things we think are the most important parts of our life. And we are missing, if that is the case, looking up and seeing the beauty of our God who has called us to freely serve him with all of our lives. He saved us that we might serve him. And just to finish this out, look at verse 76. In the middle of the prophecy now, he switches to talk about John the Baptist. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. This imagery comes out of Isaiah 35, Isaiah 40, and Isaiah 62. And this is the image. It's a beautiful image. God is over here. God's people are over here. And in between them is this inhospitable region made up of desert and rocky outcropping highlands. John the Baptist has been called to level that and make a road that is straight, that will go from God to his people. And God is the one who will walk it. It won't be a road that his people can now run to him. It'll be a road that God is now has a smooth way right to his people. John is that person. And the way he will do it is he's going to announce salvation is here. Forgiveness is now possible. Get ready. Here comes Yahweh. So the people can receive the Lord as he comes. That's John's role. Keep going. Um, verse 78 in Greek actually starts a new sentence. And it's important because the way it's written in here, it looks like the because goes back to this forgiveness and knowledge. It doesn't. It goes forward. Because of the tender mercy of our God... And tender mercy is very specific. Literally, it refers to entrails. But it becomes known uh, symbolically to refer to compassion. And, and, and in Isaiah 40, where you have this same language, this is how God says it. Speak tenderly to my people. Same language. He's going back to Isaiah to bring this out. Because God has this compassionate mercy for his people, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high... To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. Because God has this compassionate mercy. It's, this is a feeling. God actually feels for his people. Hey, this is not like a stoic, well, I am the creator of the universe. Therefore, I owe it to these creations that I have made. Um, and I will rescue them. This is God actually feeling something for his people. And because of that, 
the sunrise will come up. Again, keep the imagery here. Um, the sunrise shall visit us from on high, because where is the sun? It's in the sky. So it comes from on high. Why is it a sunrise? And this language, by the way, also reflects Malachi 4 that Heather read last week. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. That language is used especially in the Psalms. And when you have people who are in darkness, it means they don't have a knowledge of who God really is. Or they've rebelled against that knowledge. And so now they sit in darkness and in a place of death. The only way to get them out is for the sun to come up and to shine a light where the actual path of life is. To guide our feet into the way of peace. The second reason why we're called to bless the Lord is because he's provided a way that you and I can walk in peace. Within, with others, and with God. He has provided a way that we can walk in peace where we didn't have it before. We can bless him because of that. Now, if I were to ask you this morning if you have peace right now, I would guess that less than half the room would raise their hand. That internally right now, you struggle with some things. Some of it may be this season. Some of it may have to do with a job or a relationship. Some of it may have to do with your insecurities, the things you struggle with. But there's, inside, you would not say, yes, I have peace. And I would also make this argument that there are two primary reasons why we do not have the peace that God actually says, here's the path. Right? Here's the first reason. We are trying to manufacture it on our own. And it looks something like this. Anybody been to the Winchester Mansion? Just into like cool, you know, things. Got Mount Rushmore, we got the Winchester Mansion. Winchester Mansion has 160 rooms in it. It was built over 38 years, and it was continually built. So much so that they estimate between five and 600 rooms were actually built. Because what she would do is Sarah Winchester, she would decide one at an evening what she wanted. The next day, she would go to her foreman, and she would say, okay, do this now. No blueprints, no inspections. And a room would last for a while, and then she would want to change that room. And so she'd change the whole room. 160 rooms, thousands of stairs, 10,000 windows. Why did she do all of this? Here's the story behind it. She lost her infant daughter, and she lost her husband 15 years later. Her husband was part of the Winchester fortune, um, rifles. And she got all that. Well, about half of it. She got, ended up with something like 49%. Um, she was just wealthy beyond belief. However, she went to a spiritist, a medium, to find out what she would do with her grief and everything going on inside of her when she lost her husband and she lost her daughter. And this medium told her that because of the sins of her husband... All of the Indian lives that were taken with those guns. All of the other lives that had been taken. That evil spirits were going to haunt her. And the way that she could get out of it 
is by building this home and continuing to build it throughout all of the years and never stopping. And it eventually became such that she had all of these rituals where she would avoid the spirits. Some of the reason her house was so nutty is because she made secret pathways and stairs that would go to places they shouldn't go because the spirits may not follow her if she would go through these secret passages. She built this monument and wasted all of this money to get peace and never found it. What are you building in your life to get peace and you're not getting it? How much are you putting into it? How much time, how much energy, how much thought, how much money, how much blood, sweat, and tears in order to get peace and you're still not getting it? You can't manufacture peace, not long-term. However, on the flip side, here's the other reason that I think a lot of times we don't have peace. We don't actually walk the path of light. We talk about it. We even have Bible studies about it. We encourage one another. We pray about it. But we don't actually get on the path and start walking it. The peace here is not something that comes because you hear about it, because you know about it, because you study it, because you tell somebody else about it. It comes because you actually walk the path of life. He says to guide our feet on the path of peace. You have to actually do it. It's kind of like trying to lose weight by researching the right diet. Or by talking to a good friend about the diet that you want to do. Or about even getting together in a group and encouraging one another about a diet, but not actually dieting. If you don't diet, you won't get the benefits of the diet. If you don't walk on the path, the peace that is supposed to come is not coming. Let me say it in more simple terms. We have to actually live Christianity. I mean, I, just, I'm going to raise my hand. You don't, I don't want you to raise yours. I'm super good about talking about theology. Come ask me a question. Like, I could share for hours on things. Even things that don't matter, I could share for hours. And if you don't, I, I can even make stuff up if you want. I mean, it, it just, it's, it's so easy. I can stand up here and I can give you a message, good, bad, or otherwise. You can be inspired or you can fall asleep, whatever. Either way, if we don't step into it, nothing really happens other than a temporary kind of, I feel better. But then you walk back, back out and there's no peace there. We are called to a life of peace, but it's by stepping on the path. Why are we to bless God? Because he gave us the path. We are to bless God because he made it possible to serve him without fear. We are to bless God because he gave us the path to walk on. That is what Christmas ultimately is about. I end with this. Here's my favorite part of that scene with Linus when he is telling what Christmas is all about, because it's the only time in the show. When the angels say, and he quotes them, fear not, 
Linus pauses, and he drops his blanket. And then he says the rest. And then later on, he picks up his blanket. And I say two things about that to leave you with. As long as you're going to hold on to that blanket, you're really not going to know this. You're not going to know what it's like to live without that fear. And you're not going to know what it's like to actually walk that path, not just talk about the path. But here's the thing. This is what I think happens every Sunday morning. I think many of us, we drop our blankets every Sunday morning. And then before we leave, we pick them back up and we take them with us out the door and we hold on to them. I want to have a bonfire of blankies <laughs> to burn those dang things. <laughs> and this Christmas, let's bless the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you that you would free us. Thank you that we can serve you. Lord, help us to see that as the blessing that it is. And Lord, help us to, to actually get on the path, to live out what you've called us to, not only to talk about it, to think about it, to study it, to be encouraged by it, but to step into it that we might know a different kind of peace than we could ever manufacture on our own. Lord, help us to drop those blankets and to leave them there and to walk in the blessing of serving you without fear. In the name of Jesus, amen.